0: we can make a difference.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 128, Thor. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome back to all of you amazing returning listeners. And a huge welcome to all brand new listeners to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. No matter how you found this podcast, no matter if you're just a huge fan of Chris Hemsworth, and let's be honest, who isn't? Basically, December of Verbal Diorama only means one thing, kind of at the moment, and that is I like to do something called Christmas. It is a celebration of Hollywood Chrises. Last year, I covered Chris Evans and his Captain America trilogy. And this year, another white guy called Chris, and another Marvel trilogy, certainly a more divisive trilogy. But like last year's Chris, this Chris has also defined the character that he plays and evolved the character through multiple appearances in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But before we go into Thor, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for being here. There are lots of podcasts that are vying for your ears, especially at this time of year, at Well, December at Christmas, genuine Christmas, not Christmas, genuine Christmas. And there are a plethora of podcast episodes out there for you to listen to. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to Thor. And a huge thank you to everyone who's chosen to listen to the previous episodes of this podcast. They were that thing you do. And also I did an episode of Alien vs. Predator at Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. And they are both very different episodes to each other. And also very different episodes to this. So never let it be said that I don't like to mix it up here at Verbal Diorama. And to be honest, I'm just going to jump straight into Thor. Because a long time ago, back when most of us were considerably younger than we are now, there was a thing called Phase 1 of the MCU. And at this point in time, in 2011, we'd only had Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, and Iron Man 2. And all of those movies had been super. I suppose, depending on your definition of super. I'm not the hugest fan of The Incredible Hulk, I'll be honest. But all of them were very much grounded on Earth. And so for the fourth movie in the MCU, for Marvel to decide to go cosmic at that point, and additionally to explore Norse mythology, and have a Shakespearean director, all on this supreme quest to make the mighty Thor a fan favourite character. Here's the trailer for Thor.
0: Sir, so we found it. Government agencies have now cordoned off the area. Intense burst of light that came down. Jane, I think you want to see this. You alright? You dare threaten me? Thor was so puny I... What? He was freaking me
1: out! Where did he come from? Name? He said it was
0: Thor. You know, for a crazy homeless person, he's pretty cut. How'd you get
1: inside that cloud? Also, how could you eat an entire box of Pop-Tarts and still be this hungry?
2: Just drink, I like it. Another! This is going on, on Facebook,
1: smile.
0: Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same. But who are you, really? You'll see soon enough. God, I hope you're not crazy. Do you swear to guard the lives of the innocent and preserve the peace? I swear. I will destroy their kind. You can't kill an entire race. And die with them. These people are innocent. I have no plans to die today.
1: Wanting to wage war with the Frost Giants, the arrogant and vain Crown Prince Thor Odinson is cast out from Asgard by his father Odin, deemed unworthy and banished to Earth. With no way home and his hammer Mjolnir lost, Thor struggles to reclaim his powers. Meanwhile on Asgard, Thor's devious brother Loki has seized the throne and seeks to help the Frost Giants reclaim their glory. With the help of scientist Jane Foster and her team, Thor must learn how to become a worthy leader and return home to stop Loki and save Asgard from destruction. Let's quickly go through the cast of this movie. Chris Hemsworth as Thor, Natalie Portman as Jane Foster, Tom Hiddleston as Loki, Stellan Skarsgård as Erik Selvig, Colm Fjord as Laufey, Ray Stevenson as Volstagg, Idris Elba as Heimdall, Kat Dennings as Darcy Lewis, René Russo as Frigga, Anthony Hopkins as Odin, Tananobu Asano as Hogan, Josh Dallas as Fandral, Jamie Alexander as Sif, and Clark Gregg as Phil Coulson, a.k.a. Son of Cole. Additionally, Stan Lee cameos as the truck driver and writer J. Michael Straczynski as one of the first guys to try and lift Thor's hammer. Samuel L. Jackson and Jeremy Renner cameo as Nick Fury and Clint Barton, respectively. And this is the first outing for Clint Barton in the MCU, which is quite timely as the TV show Hawkeye is currently out and is honestly very, very good. Thor has a screenplay by Ashley Edward Miller, Zach Stentz and Don Payne. Story by J. Michael Straczynski and Mark Protosevich. It was directed by Kenneth Branagh and based on Thor by Stan Lee. Larry Lieber and Jack Kirby. And not only is this the first foray into Cosmic Marvel, it's also the first MCU hero based on actual mythology, the hammer-wielding god of thunder of specifically Germanic and Norse mythology. Now, I know the mythology surrounding Thor is incredibly important to Nordic people. And to be honest, I'm not going to go into too much history, mostly because I don't want to butcher this history and I don't want to butcher the names of the Norse gods. But Thor, the movie, is based on Thor, the comic book, which is in turn based on Thor, the actual god of thunder of Norse mythology. I think that's all pretty obvious stuff. Thor and other gods associated with him is mentioned or appears in several poems in the poetic Edda, compiled during the 13th century from traditional source material from the pagan period, as well as in the prose Edda, an Old Norse textbook written in Iceland during the early 13th century, which is attributed to the Icelandic scholar and historian Snorri Sturluson. The prose Edda draws from the poetic Edda, except the content is in textbook form. Thor, son of Odin, ruler of the gods, and Odin's mistress Yord, the personification of Earth, is a warrior god or Aesir. Asgard is his hope, just as Midgard is ours. Like most gods, Norse gods have their equivalent in other mythologies. So the Roman god equivalent would be Jupiter, and the Greek god equivalent would probably be Zeus, which is interesting when you find out that according to the internet, Thor, Love and Thunder will not only feature Zeus, but that's who Russell Crowe is playing. Zeus is also no stranger to the Thor comics, and nor is his son Hercules, but we'll save that for another episode, probably. Thor was depicted as red-haired, strong and benevolent towards mankind. Wielding his hammer Mjolnir, he would go on to marry the golden-haired warrior Sith. And before anyone says anything, I realise that by not releasing this episode on a Thursday, it's actually coming out on a Monday, I'm basically foregoing the right to promote it as Thor's Day because Thor is actually the inspiration for Thursday, just as Friday is Frigga's Day. In fact, all of the regular working days are named after Norse gods. Monday is Moon Day, named after the moon god Manny. Tuesday is Tuesday, after Tew, the Norse god of war. And Wednesday is Woden's Day. And Woden is the pre-Norse name for Odin. And genuinely, I did not know all of that. I knew that Thursday was Thor's Day but I didn't know that all of the other days were also named after Norse gods, so I have genuinely learned something amazing while researching for this podcast. Thor first appeared in Marvel Comics in Journey into Mystery No. 83 in August 1962 with a cover image introducing the Mighty Thor, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber and Jack Kirby. The character actually appeared in DC Comics in 1957 in Tales of the Unexpected, which had also been illustrated by Jack Kirby, Kirby reused some of the designs of the DC version, but otherwise Marvel's Thor was a modernised version of the character with some notable changes. The character would become one of the founding members of the Avengers in Avengers No. 1 in September 1963. Thor's first self-titled comic book would come in March 1966, when Journey into Mystery No. 126 would be renamed The Mighty Thor No. 126. Marvel filed for the trademark of The Mighty Thor in 1967 and was awarded the patent in 1970. Comic book Thor would still be vain and arrogant, and his father Odin would incarcerate Thor, without his memories of Asgard or who he was, on Earth as partially disabled, mortal medical student Donald Blake. Hence the Donald Blake link in this movie. Blake would have no idea of his godly roots, and would eventually become a doctor. Thor's hammer Mjolnir would be disguised as a walking stick, and by striking it against a rock, Blake would become Thor with Blake leading a double life between being Dr. Donald Blake and using his alter ego Thor to defend humanity. He would fall in love with Nurse Jade Foster, and his presence on Earth would attract the attention of his adoptive brother Loki, who would then send foes to Earth. This would actually be beneficial, though, as these battles would cause Thor to co-found the Avengers alongside Ant-Man, the Wasp, Hulk, and Iron Man. Despite Odin's requests, Thor would refuse to return to Asgard instead wishing to stay on Earth to be with Jane. And in the comics, his affiliation with Earth is revealed to be because his mother was the goddess Gaia. Odin eventually agrees to the relationship Thor has with Jane on the condition she pass a test, which she fails, and she's returned to Earth. And Thor would then be introduced to Sif, who canonically is his wife, as I mentioned. Obviously, in this movie, Sif is neither golden-haired, nor is she his wife. And obviously, in the movie, Thor is not red-haired, he is golden-haired. But the comic book lore of Thor, (laughs) lore of Thor, is far too complicated and complex to go through. So let's just fast forward to Thor's first live action appearance on screen, which was in 1988 and not even in a Thor movie. Because back when Bruce Banner was known as David Banner and Lou Ferrigno painted himself green to become Hulk, a made-for-TV movie called The Incredible Hulk Returns served as a continuation of the TV show which ran from 1978 to 1982. Bill Bixby would return as David Banner, Lou Ferrigno as Hulk, and a newly banished Thor, played by Eric Kramer, who you'll remember from my episode on Robin Hood Men in Tights, as well as his alter ego Donald Blake, played by Steve Levitt. This was the first time another Marvel character appeared in the TV universe of The Incredible Hulk. This TV movie was intended to serve as a backdoor pilot for a TV series of Thor. However, this remained unproduced, despite the success of The Incredible Hulk Returns in the ratings. Thor would appear in multiple animation forms, starting in 1966, in the animated The Marvel Superheroes, through to a cameo in the X-Men animated series in The Dark Phoenix Saga Part 3. A Thor TV series was in development in 2000 at Artisan Entertainment, starring Tyler Mane, X-Men's Sabretooth. He was supposed to star as Thor, as confirmed by Marvel Studios' Rick Unger. However, nothing actually materialised. The origins of a film adaptation of Thor started in 1991 with Sam Raimi. Yes, that's Sam Raimi of Evil Dead and Spider-Man trilogy fame. After Raimi did Darkman, Man, Stanley called him, took him out to lunch to discuss a collaboration. Raimi had always wanted to make a Thor movie and so he and Lee worked together on a treatment for Thor, which Raimi pitched to Fox in 1991. Their response was, comic books don't make good movies. I mean, this is obviously ignoring Superman and Batman but they were the only examples that really worked and they were cosmic gods based on Norse mythology and technically also pop culture icons that existed outside of their comic book franchises. Arguably, had Fox greeted lit Thor, the superhero movie landscape would look very, very different today. I've mentioned several times before on multiple episodes about Marvel sending the rights to its characters to other studios to avoid bankruptcy. Thor's rights belonged to Fox, moving to Sony in the 2000s, but then would end up lapsing and returning to Marvel in 2006. Of course, in 2000, Fox's X-Men franchise changed everything when it came to superhero movies focused on a wide audience. It was in 2006 that Marvel signed Mark Protosevich to develop a Thor project to be financed and released in a deal with Paramount Studios, the same distribution deal in place for Iron Man 1 and 2 and Captain America The First Avenger, until the rights were acquired by Walt Disney Studios in 2010. And this is why the Paramount logo remains on these movies as well as Thor. Just as a side note, The Incredible Hulk is a universal property, so is treated quite differently. For this version of Thor, Matthew Vaughn was hired to direct and was still attached to the project in 2008 when he was interviewed by Empire about his work on the project post-Stardust, which I've also done an episode on, by the way. At the time, he claimed they were in a holding pattern perhaps a nice way of describing developmental hell, but he did state at the time they were looking for an unknown to play Thor and that it was going to respect the comic book origins as well as be updated for modern audiences. With an estimated $300 million budget, Vaughn was tasked to halving that budget. Vaughn's deal with Marvel expired in May 2008 and that very same month, a little movie called Iron Man debuted to rave reviews and huge financial success. Marvel set Protosevich to work on a new script for Thor and Guillermo del Toro entered talks to direct. He was a big fan of Jack Kirby's work on the comics. Del Toro wanted to incorporate more of the Norse mythology but eventually would turn down the opportunity to direct Thor to instead direct The Hobbit, which, as we all know, never actually happened. And I'm still sad about that. In September 2000, Kenneth Branagh entered negotiations Branner was known for his classical training and his Shakespearean adaptations, including Henry V," "What you Do about Nothing," "Othello," and "Hamlet." Branner had not directed since 2007's "Sleuth and confirmed his involvement in December 2008 and described it as a human story right in the center of a big epic scenario. On the one hand, Branner was an odd choice for a superhero movie, but on the other, he was a perfect choice for a family-driven, universal story of conflict a spoiled son impatient to take over, what is essentially the family business, a father realising his son isn't ready, a resentful brother who doesn't understand why their father prefers his brother, and the traditional good old love of a woman to help a man become worthy and give him something to fight for. Originally slated for a release in July 2010, and to avoid a clash with Iron Man 2, Marvel would push Thor back almost a whole year to June 2011, and then to May 2011 to avoid clashes with Captain America the First Avenger, which was scheduled for a July 2011 release. Kenneth Branagh would also film a post credit scene for Iron Man 2, filmed with the same anamorphic lenses to match Thor to show the discovery of a large hammer. And no, I don't mean Justin Hammer. Sorry, that's a terrible joke. A hunt began in earnest to find the titular character. Chris Hemsworth, then 25, was primarily known as James Kirk's father, George Kirk, in the opening scenes of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot. Shortly after Star Trek, he had filmed a little horror movie called The Cabin in the Woods, which is episode 5 of this podcast so long ago. Cabin in the Woods would remain unreleased until 2012, but it capitalised on Hemsworth's newfound recognition as the God of Thunder. Hemsworth had auditioned for Thor and was refused early in the casting process. His younger brother Liam had also auditioned, as well as Tom Hiddleston, and his audition video is available online, Blondwig and all While the character of Thor in the comics is drawn with more muscles than any human being could physically have, they wanted an actor who could believably be the god of thunder, but could also show humility and humour and a presence on screen. Chris Hemsworth was confirmed in June 2009, despite being initially rejected, and put in six to nine months of intense physical training to achieve his godlike physique. Tom Hiddleston, who had worked with Branagh on the TV series Wallander, as well as on stage, was confirmed as Loki in May 2009. And let's be honest, the cast of Thor is pretty mighty. It may be the introduction for most of us to Chris Hemsworth, Tom Hiddleston and Idris Elba, but there are plenty of recognisable names. Natalie Portman, who in between filming Thor and its release, won a Best Actress Oscar in February 2011 for her role in Black Swan. It can't have hurt this film to have that year's Academy Award winning actress in the lead role of your Marvel movie. Portman was attracted to the role of Jane Foster, changed from a nurse to a physicist because she wanted to work with Kenneth Branagh and it was a big-budget film that emphasised character. She didn't originally want to take on another big-budget role so soon after the physically and psychologically exhausting work on Black Swan, but so keen was she to work with Branagh and to shake Jane into more than just a damsel in distress that she would sign on without even seeing a script. Everyone's all-father, Anthony Hopkins, who confessed to not being a fan of the comics, but he was a fan of Brannor, was confirmed as Odin in October 2009, and René Russo as Frigga that December. Russo had been on a career hiatus for three years, but again, couldn't pass up the opportunity to work with Kenneth Branagh. It's like, who else do you want of note in your Thor movie? Stan Skarsgård? Sure. Con Get him in there too. Stuart Townsend was originally cast as Fandral, but left the production due to creative differences, He would be replaced by Joshua Dallas, who would also be replaced, but that's a story for the next movie. Filming commenced in January 2010 at Raleigh Manhattan Beach Studios in California. An agreement with Raleigh had been made between Marvel and the studio to film Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America the First Avenger and The Avengers there. The production moved to New Mexico in March. Four-time Oscar-nominated production designer Ben Welsh was tasked with presenting contemporary Midgard cosmic Asgard and icy Jotunheim bridging the reality cap between the three locations while making each unique. Welsh took inspiration from the comics, from images from the Hubble or indeed Hubble telescope and constructed a lavish, golden and warmly toned Asgard which, along with the contradicting cold-toned Jotunheim, was shot on sound stages at Raleigh Studios. Asgard would be privileged but peaceful and elegant, grounded in Norse mythology and Nordic design I can neither confirm nor deny that the Odin sleep took place in an Ikea bed. I'm joking, it didn't. But even though the Grand Cosmos was rendered digitally for the backgrounds, as much of Asgard was physical as possible. The Grand Throne Room, Heimdall's Observatory, all were practical sets and nothing was done in this movie on a small scale. Thor is big. It's bigger in scale and scope than the two Iron Man movies that preceded it. Heimdall's Observatory doesn't exist in the comics. And so the whole set was designed and created with the idea of a place where Heimdall controls the Bifrost, which in actual Norse mythology is pronounced Bifrost. The look of Thor can be attributed to director of photography Harris Zambalukos, who worked closely with Beau Welsh and Kenneth Branner to make the cosmic realm feel like you are actually in space, as well as the Hennish landscape of Jotunheim feel like, well, I see hell. When the production did end up in New Mexico for six weeks in March-April, they didn't expect the hellish, Jotunheim-like weather to follow, but follow it did. The desert location was plagued with snow, hail and heavy winds on a regular basis. The location, the Cerro Pelon Ranch on State Highway 41 near Galisteo, New Mexico, was chosen to stage a small town within a vast desert, the sort of place you can look up to the sky and see the stars. This location, for a showdown between Thor and the Destroyer, was actually kind of apt. It's the same location where famous westerns like Silverado, Wyatt Earp and 310 to Yuma were shot. A fictitious town, Puerto Antigo, which means ancient bridge in Spanish, was constructed on the 24,000 acre ranch, designed to echo the shape of the Asgard Palace and for the ancient bridge to be the connection to the Rainbow Bridge on Earth. A small town in the middle of a vast desert juxtaposed to the grandeur of Asgard in the vast nothingness of space. Originally, the team toyed with the idea of Thor actually landing in the Old West of the 1850s, but a contemporary environment would be more easily engaging to a modern audience than the Wild West would be. With New Mexico literally being storm chaser land, looking up to the sky and chasing weather is not unheard of, and the Bifrost landing site was constructed by applying a 20-foot stencil, inspired by Celtic designs and ancient runes, and then sprinkling ground lava rocks to generate the design. The costume design, which is so beautiful in this movie, by the way, was also incredibly important to the look of Asgard. Costume designer Alexandra Burke, who'd worked with Branagh for 25 years prior, had won an Academy Award for Elizabeth, the Golden Age, and took reference from Jack Kirby's images to create a lavish, bold, bright costuming for the Asgardians, including helmets. Even Thor's cape had to be an expressive character in its own right. It had to move a certain way to look a certain way on camera. It had to bellow out when moving. And most importantly, not getting Hemsworth's way. They did consider adding a CG cape, but the material they eventually found, a wool blend from here in the UK, was cut, bonded and weighted to react the way that it does on screen. Byrne would go on to work on the costumes for the Avengers, Avengers Age of Ultron, Guardians of the Galaxy and Doctor Strange. And if you're wondering why you focus so much on Thor's arms when watching, that is intentional. Byrne wanted to highlight Hemsworth's arms, or maybe that's just me who notices his arms. And while most will see Thor's shirtless seen as superfluous, Hemsworth requested it. Because why spend all that time sculpting your body if no one actually sees it? It would actually take an hour to put the whole Thor armor on, plus another 90 minutes for hair and makeup. Now, I can't talk about Thor without talking about Dutch angles or Dutch tilt. Thor is full of camera shots that are angled with a tilt. If you've not noticed this before, and I'm sure most of you listening have, rewatch Thor and notice how many shots are tilted. It was a style Kenneth Branagh specifically chose. Dutch angles are common in comic books. Each frame is angled as if it were a comic book frame. And the reason no one else has chosen to do this is because once you see the Dutch angles, you can't unsee them. It does, however, add a certain mysticism and otherworldly aspect to Thor that's missing from its sequels although there are a handful in the dark world plus the avengers did have a dutch angle on thor when he says you people are so petty this is a direct reference to all of the dutch angles on thor and someone who's neither dutch nor angular is keanu reeves and this is a great way that's not the reference by the way this is a great way to segue to the obligatory keanu reference of this episode So I'm sure you know by now that I like to try and link the movie that I'm featuring every week to Keanu Reeves. Why? Well, why not is what I always say. And of course, the easiest one that I could go for is that Keanu Reeves has also worked with Kenneth Branagh. They worked together on 1993's Much Ado About Nothing, which I have not seen, which I know is a little bit strange because I love Shakespeare and I love Keanu Reeves. So I really should remedy that. But I've seen still images, and he does look incredibly hot in that movie, so I will take it upon myself to watch Much Ado About Nothing in honour of this obligatory Keanu reference. It was an old Celtic folk song that inspired the leitmotif of Patrick Doyle's Thor score. Thor score. Oh, God, there's so... (laughs) Thor score and seven years ago. Anyway, Doyle, a frequent collaborator of Branagh, wanted to find a score that fit the duality of Earth and Asgard. Thor also includes a song by Foo Fighters. It is the song Walk. It was a late addition to the closing credits as well as the bar scene after it was felt that the song had appropriate themes and lyrics of learning to be a hero, having that redemption arc and waiting to do so. The world premiere of Thor took place in Sydney on the 17th of April 2011. It debuted in the US on the 6th of May 2011 where it opened at number one at the box office. Its only competition that week being Jumping the Broom which I don't know what that is, and Something Borrowed, which I do know what that is but I've never seen. The following week, Bridesmaids, which is another amazing episode of this podcast, by the way, was released but couldn't dethrone the future king of Asgard. Thor dropped to number four in its third week after Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides and The Hanover Part 2 were released. And boy, those movies feel much older than Thor, don't they? Domestically in the US, Thor would gross $181 million with a worldwide gross of $449.3 million on a $150 million budget. That total worldwide gross was the third lowest of Phase 1. Captain America the First Avenger was $370.6 million. The Incredible Hulk is still the lowest grosser at $264.8 million and that is across the whole of the MCU. Critically, it sits at 77% of Rotten Tomatoes, higher than its sequel but lower than its second sequel. But then Thor Ragnarok, as we're going to come to on this podcast, is a completely different beast. And talking of sequels, Thor The Dark World would come out two years later, but I'm going to save that discussion for the next episode. But yes, I do have a lot to say about Thor The Dark World. Talking of people who've got a lot to say, let's have a listen to social media thoughts. I like to ask people who listen to this podcast, regular contributors, what they think about the movie that I'm featuring. And I like to ask on Patreon, and I like to ask all over social media. And so we're going to start with the patrons. I'm going to start with Brendan.
2: And Brendan says, After travelling the expansive time and space of the MCU cosmos during the back half of the Infinity Saga, it's easy to look down on Kenneth Branagh's comparatively small thought as a mere appetiser of what was to come. However, Brander's knack for combining intimate drama and visual splendour with a talent for nailing approachable Shakespearean tonal balance has paid dividends ever since. Apart from being a defining debut for so many MCU regulars since Jane, Darcy, Clint and Loki, the film constructs a tight, clear and largely satisfying abnormal journey that showcases Chris Hemsworth's comedy, physicality and dramatic skills in a brisk under two hours. It's not quite as stunning as Iron Man was out of the gate, or as rewarding as Captain America the First Avenger has proven. But even a decade later, it's still fairly mighty. God, I totally agree with that. Perennial commenter Andy is next, and Andy says... I'll never forget, Mike and I were recording an episode of our podcast when my friend Steve sent me a text saying, there's no way the Thor movie is going to be any good, right? And for someone who grew up in the comics area where Thor was the tis of thou embodiment of manly virtue, I was poised to agree. Unfortunately, I was proven completely wrong. A lot of what makes Thor work is a fresher take on the character. Chris Hemsworth's natural charm and humour turn the character on his head and make him an absolute joy to watch. Couple that with Tom Hiddleston's amazing take on Loki and a solid art direction, the movie is a slam dunk of ice giant proportions.
1: And you should know by now, Andy hosts the podcast Geek Salad. It is the place to go for all of your geeky, Nerdy, amazing, wonderful needs. They talk about everything on that podcast, movies, TV show, music, games, literally anything and everything to do with geek culture. So you should absolutely listen to that podcast. Or I will pop some information in the show notes for Geek Salad. We also have a patron comment from Sam who says,
2: Hemsworth, yes. Hopkins, yes. Hiddleston, double yes. Got a bunch of flaws, parentheses, flaws.
1: I don't quite think that works, Sam, but okay.
2: But still an enjoyable introduction of a bizarre character slash universe that could have easily been the train wreck of a film. 6,787 hammers out of 10,000. And
1: Sam, he also hosts a podcast. He hosts the podcast Movie Reviews in 20 Qs. And they basically take a movie, like Thor, and they ask 20 weird and wonderful questions about the movie that they're covering. And it's absolute hilarity. So you should absolutely listen to movie reviews in 20Qs. I will pop some information for Sam's podcast in the show notes too. And the final patron
2: comment comes from Derek, who says, "Of Phase 1 MCU movies, this one is easily my favourite. Perhaps it's my love of Norse myth, but i come back to this one over and over. Thor's arc from spoiled, entitled prince to being a self-sacrificing leader his many themes, worthiness. I also love how Loki isn't a moustache twirling villain, but a full-fledged trickster who stumbles his way into usurping the throne. As big as what the heck, I might as well blow up the planet for my stepdad.
1: And Derek also hosts a podcast as well. He hosts with his wife, Laurel, and they have an amazing podcast. It's called The Midnight Myth, and they are the mythology king and queen. So I only hope that this podcast has done Norse mythology justice purely for Derek and Laurel because they look at pop culture through the lens of history, philosophy, and mythology. And it's one of the most fascinating podcasts you'll ever listen to. Information in the show notes as well for The Midnight Myth. Moving over to Twitter, we will start with Ah, uh, It's a Musical pod, who said, I love Thor, but I do feel the franchise owes its success to Loki. Spot on casting. Chris Hemsworth is great, but the writing didn't showcase him until Ragnarok, a fun but flawed entry into the MCU. At D. W. Lindbergh said, It was a gamble introducing the world of magic this early into the MCU, and for the most part they pulled it off. Hemsworth sells the sincerity of the character, and Branner juggles the Asgard and New Mexico sequences well, though the constant shift between them is a bit jarring. At Nicolai's Kitchen said, I'm a sucker for Shakespeare, so Branner's Shakespearean sensibilities really made it a better movie for me than most. At Craig SG1 said, Back when MCU meant nothing to most people and hot on the heels of Iron Man came Thor, I, along with most people, didn't know what to expect. With great casting and story, a hallmark of Marvel, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Even now, it holds up above what the DCU is. At Films underscore that said, died blonde, eyebrows. That is great comment. At Best Film Ever pod said, The Thor film people forget was as good as it was. So much humour, so much action. So much heart and the best set piece in a Marvel film when Thor tries unsuccessfully to rescue Mjolnir, easily the best base one Marvel film. It's a shame they just let Jane lie in the dirt. At Next to the Oil said, Very good introduction to the character, not as good as Captain America. The difference in Thor from this to Endgame is staggering. At Film Effect Pod said, Love all the work that you do and while I'm not the biggest Thor fan, I'll still be checking out the episode, all because of you. Thank you, that's really kind. At Rachel Herrera 11 said, Thought is awesome, easy on the eyes, fish out of water story with Loki who, let's be honest, steals the franchise and Sir Anthony. Magic. Or do you mean science, Rachel? Because they are one and the same thing. At Thief CGT said, It's not bad, bad, but it's certainly not my favourite MCU film. Probably even on my bottom tier of the franchise. The highlight is Tom Hiddleston who clearly knows how to best chew the scenery, for what it's worth, when I say bottom tier, I don't mean it as much of a slight, given the high floor, low ceiling nature of the MCU.
2: At uh, Jonathan
1: Blade said, Everything before and after the fish out of water core of the film is glorious. Overall, Thor is fine. When I originally asked for comments, I basically said that anyone who provides a comment will be worthy. And so the cinema guys said, Are you saying they shall be hemsworthy? Which is great. Well done, Brad, well done. And Brad continues, Are you ready for this? I think Thor was the weakest film in phase one. And, wait for it, I think Dark World is a better movie than this one. Be interesting to hear your thoughts. Next week, Brad, when I do, Thor the Dark World. Moving over to Instagram, at Friendly said, I loved everything about this film and was very impressed by all the performances. I wasn't sure how I was going to like Chris Hemsworth, but he exceeded expectations. And At The Basement Binge said, Chris Hemsworth made Thor instantly lovable. Tom Hiddleston stole the show as Loki. And ultimately, we all got excited about Norse mythology. There might just be a few too many Dutch angles. No comments over on Facebook. But as always, thank you so much for everyone who took the time to provide comments for Thor. You are all worthy. When you have a franchise consisting of 26 movies now, which is crazy, by the way, It's inevitable that you'll have movies at the top of your list, in the middle, and at the bottom. Luckily for those movies languishing at the bottom of the MCU list, there is no such thing as a bad MCU movie. Marvel has honed its craft over 13 years, and Thor is very much a cookie-cutter introduction to a character, a fish-out-of-water story, and it could easily languish at the bottom of the list. Just because it was one of the first, it's a simple story, and it's so different to everything else in the universe at that time. But what elevates Thor is the charm of its lead actor and an excellent supporting cast. Arguably, Rene Russo is given very little to do. This is rectified somewhat in the sequel. And even Natalie Portman seems to just be there to gawp at Thor. But honestly, you would. And I think she sells the fact that she's enamoured with him immediately very well. Because again, it's Chris Hemsworth, you would be. Not many actors can hold their own against Anthony Hopkins. And the fact that Chris Hemsworth can and does and Tom Hiddleston can does, and the fact Tom Hiddleston adds all these layers to Loki, a villain who is essentially a throwaway character. is astonishing how important Thor is to the MCU. Kenneth Branagh and the casting directors chose incredible people who could work with and mould these characters over time. The evolution of Thor over 10 years is astounding, arguably credited to the fine writers and directors, but also to Hemsworth. Loki started as a troubled brother, became a villain, and then an effective anti-hero to the hero of his own story in Loki, which is a remarkably short TV show on Disney+. Plus. I'd highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. As well as the TV show What If, which has a great Thor-centric episode called What If Thor Were An Only Child. It's very, very fun. Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston also return to voice their characters as well. Together, Hemsworth and Hiddleston feel like brothers. They're different enough to be believable, but connected enough to feel related, if not by blood. And I really hope we get to see more Thor and Loki on screen at some point in the future. And with the multiverse now officially going to be a thing, fingers crossed that there's a possibility that we could get that. I love Thor. Genuinely love this movie. I watch this movie so often, you could not believe. It can't be my number one MCU movie or even in my number 10, simply because there are better movies in the MCU. But it's a beautiful entry to Cosmic Marvel. It's perfectly cast as well, like I said. And Dutch angles aside, Kenneth Branagh really was the best choice to direct a full-on Doth Mother Know You Weareth Her Drapes in Space. Because that is essentially what this movie is. And that's not taking anything away from this movie, because I think this movie is absolutely brilliant. And yes, you could come for the Frost Giants being rubbish villains. And the underdeveloped romance between Jane and Thor. Although Branagh admitted it was supposed to be just a flight of fancy rather than full-blown instant love, but the fact it can keep its mythology and fantasy balanced against small-town New Mexico and not lose any of its charm whatsoever. Thor might not be at the top end of anyone's MCU list, but this is one of the many backbones of the MCU. The fact that Chris Hemsworth is coming back to play this character for our fourth movie next year is testament to the strength of this character. The story of Thor may be small, but the consequences for the MCU were mighty. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Thor. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever you found this episode. Tell your friends and family, especially if they love Chris Hemsworth, because there's going to be more Chris Hemsworth coming up on this podcast, not him really. Although that would be great. I would definitely like to have Chris Hemsworth on this podcast. But I mean his Thor movies. There could be more Thor movies coming up. So tell your friends and family, especially if they like Thor or the MCU. I've done loads of MCU episodes, by the way. Also, you can retweet or like posts on social media. That would be amazing. And if you like this episode on Thor specifically, you might also like one of the following episodes. Now, I've covered lots of MCU movies. But I feel like if I'm going to recommend movies, then I can only really recommend the movies where Thor has also featured. So I would recommend episode 97, The Avengers, episode 98, Avengers Age of Ultron, 99, Avengers Infinity War, and 100, Avengers Endgame. Because they perfectly encapsulate the journey of Thor from this movie all the way through to the end and Endgame. And obviously now we're going to get Thor Love and Thunder. And I can't wait to see that movie. A, because it's a Thor movie and Thor is fun. B, it's a sequel to Ragnarok, which we're going to talk about Ragnarok on this podcast. And I'm so excited to bring you that episode because that episode also has an amazing special guest and we just really went to town on how brilliant Thor Ragnarok is. Give me feedback on my recommendations. I mean, it's not really difficult to recommend movies that Thor has been in. Let me know if you think I missed anything. Next episode, obviously, is Thor The Dark World. Thor The Dark World is interesting in the MCU canon. It does have arguably worse villains <laughs> than this one. It has a new fan It has more for Jane to do, more for Frigga to do. And portals in the city of London. I kind of feel like Thor The Dark World is the one that most people dislike. But I still maintain there is a lot to like in that movie. If you want to follow me and say hi, you can do so. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. If you want to sign up to support the podcast, it's VerbalDiorama.com slash Patreon. And as always, a huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E., Sade, Claudia, Simon B., Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, and Chris. They are the Warriors 3, plus Sif and another 20. You can check out merch at verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. My website is verbaldiorama.com. And I also write for filmstories.co.uk. You should make sure you check out the magazine and also the articles online. And finally, this podcast. I like it. Another! Bye.